Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 874. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we pray now for your spirit to accompany the word as it has just been read and it is to now be preached that your spirit will bear much fruit in our lives through the word of God, through your truth. We pray, Lord, that you would minister to us as needed. You know our hearts. You know where we are coming from. You know where we are at right now in relation to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our lives for your glory and our good. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, in the course of this sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, we have been studying various episodes that all center around a meal with Jesus. We've been noting how these shared meals really serve as a plot device to move the story along and to develop the characters that we come across. We've seen Jesus make intentional choices with whom he will share table fellowship with certain groups of people in order to clarify his mission on earth. He makes it clear to us that he has come to heal the sick. He has come to seek the lost. He has come to call sinners to repentance. Shared meals clarify his mission. At the same time, shared meals reveal his heart. They reveal his heart of compassion for the sick or for the hungry or for the outcast and the downcast in society. And in this morning's text, in our passage here in Luke 15, in these two parables that are told in response to objections over his practice of table fellowship, Jesus reveals that his heart is constantly filled with exuberant joy. And since he is the Son of God, he is the second person of the triune Godhead, by extension that means that in this morning's passage we are learning something about the very heart of God. 
God's heart is constantly rejoicing with exuberant joy. Now, let's be honest. That might be an unfamiliar picture of God for many of us. We all have a default image of God in our mind's eye. And for some of us, when we picture God, we see a glorious, majestic, regal figure. We see the King of kings, the Lord of lords. For others, we we see a kind and gentle grandfatherly figure. Or for others, we see a severe, austere authority figure who holds, holds us to high standards and expectations. I'll venture to guess, though, that for most of us, when we picture God in our mind, we don't see a God who is bubbling with joy gushing with gladness, singing and shouting at the top of his voice in celebration over us. A joyful, celebratory God doesn't instinctively come to mind for many of us. So a verse like Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 will probably come as a shock to you as it describes the mighty God who saves like this. Listen here. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Have you ever pictured God in that way? Singing over you with a booming loud voice. People only sing with a loud voice when they're happy. I mean, when I'm feeling in a good mood and I'm all just by myself in my own car, I'll probably be singing at the top of my voice to whatever song is on the radio. And you probably will be doing the same thing. Maybe even with other people in the car, you just do that. Because when you're in a good mood, you love to just naturally sing. We do that as an expression of our exuberant joy. And that's how the prophet Zephaniah is describing God's emotional response towards his beloved people. He can't help but sing over us with a loud voice. Now, admittedly, that's hard for many of us to wrap our heads around. We see God as a divine, exalted authority figure, and it's hard for us to see an authority figure as a joyous figure. And you could chalk it up to the way that we were raised or or to the culture that we grew up in. The reality is that most of us have a difficult Um, have difficulty picturing an authority figure as a joyous figure. And so we would describe God as holy. We would describe God as mighty or sovereign. We would describe him as loving and merciful, as good and kind. But would we describe him as joyful and exuberant? As someone who sings loudly over those in whom he rejoices, I really doubt that that would have been the first image in your mind's eye. But that's why we need this morning's text. We need Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10, because it supplies for us three images of God that I hope, on one hand, will challenge some preconceived notions of God, and on the other hand, I hope and pray that this passage will comfort those who feel lost right now, who feel aimless in their lives, especially in their relationship with God. So we're going to see these three images. If you want to follow along, look in your uh, bulletin. There's an outline there listing these three images. First, we're going to see a God 
who welcomes sinners. Second, we'll see a God who seeks the lost. And thirdly, we'll ponder a God who rejoices over the repentant. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's start now with the God who welcomes sinners. We'll begin by considering the prelude to three of the most famous parables of Jesus. In verses 1 to 2, we are given the background occasion that led Jesus to tell these three related parables all in one sitting. Now, the parable of the prodigal son, of course, is the most famous of the three, but we're actually not planning on studying that one in detail. We'll we'll, we'll make reference to it, but we're really going to focus on the first two, the parable of the lost sheep and of the lost coin. And we learn in the prelude that the religious leaders of the day were simply disgusted by Jesus' welcoming attitude towards those who were considered morally despised and socially excluded. So look with me in verses 1 to 2. I'll read that again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, like in last week's passage, starting in chapter 14, verse 25, this episode also involves a great crowd surrounding Jesus. But here, we're talking specifically about a crowd that consists of the outcasts and the reprobates of society. You have to understand, friends, that tax collectors in those days were some of the most despised members of first century Jewish society. They were fellow Jews who were willing to work for the oppressive Roman authorities. And so they were considered to be betrayers of their own kinsmen, doing it all for greed. Tax collectors were notorious for their dishonesty, for skimming off the top. Now, sinners, well, sinners was just a catch-all term to label anyone that was perceived to have forfeited a relationship with God by their immoral lifestyle or by their choices that were contrary to his law. Sinners were considered the objects of God's wrath and judgment. They were the reprobate. Sinners were dismissed members of society. And the righteous man would do best to avoid the path of sinners. So, isn't it ironic that it's the despised and dismissed members of society that are drawing near to Jesus and being warmly received? Notice at the end of chapter 14, the very last verse in verse 35, Jesus had just been describing uh, all the costs of being one of his disciples, and he concludes by saying the very last sentence, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, apparently the ones who have ears to hear that can hear Jesus are the outcasts and the reprobates of society, not the religious leaders of the day the Pharisees and scribes. And that explains their response to Jesus' welcome of these tax collectors and sinners. In verse 2, it says that they grumbled. Now, in the New Testament, that word only appears here and later on in chapter 19, verse 7, when the same leaders are grumbling when they see Jesus dining in the home of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. Now, that choice there of using that word grumble by the Apostle Luke um, is, is intentional. He is choosing that word grumble because it directly associates Jesus' opponents with Israel's infamous 
wilderness generation. We're talking about those distrusting, disobeying Jews who rejected the Lord in the wilderness in the days of Moses, rejecting Moses himself, who was God's anointed leader. Well, the Pharisees and scribes were resembling that generation in the way that they are grumbling, and at the same time, they're rejecting God's chosen, anointed leader, Jesus, the Messiah. Well, the Pharisees, you have to understand, were a populist sect of Judaism that interpreted Mosaic laws very strictly, and they applied it very stringently. But the problem is that they went beyond Scripture And they eventually developed all of their own rules, their own traditions, and they were going around binding everyone's consciences to maintain not just the law of God, but their their own traditions. And at the core, you have to understand the Pharisees were purists, and they were separatists. They advocated for a separatist stance towards the unbelieving world. They practiced an ethic of avoidance. So when it came to the ancient practice of table fellowship, the Pharisees used the table as a means to exclude people, as a means of preserving a very rigid class structure. That's how they approached a shared meal. It was a way to draw lines. It was a way to keep people in their place. And so that's why they hated Jesus, and they grumbled because he was upsetting the order. Because he used the table in a completely opposite way than them. He approached a shared meal as a means of including people. As a means of welcoming them to cross over these established lines and barriers. He intentionally shared table fellowship with those that the rest of society would have simply rejected. Now, as we're trying to understand the Pharisees, I I, I don't want to paint a false impression here and and have you think that the separatist instinct of the Pharisees meant that they were isolationists. No, they they didn't draw away from society. They they didn't just hide in their own cloistered monasteries. They were very active, actually, in seeking to expand their sect. They would go and try to recruit. They would try to add to their numbers. So, for example, In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verse 15, Jesus acknowledges their active efforts to make converts, to make proselytes. But at the same time, he condemns those very efforts. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte or a convert... You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So you see, they were active, aggressive even, in proselytizing, in making converts. But they were only interested in adding to their number. They they weren't really trying to seek and save the lost. They were building up their own tribe. They, They were growing their sect, finding people who already fit the mold or forcing people into their mold, making converts in their own image. Well, Jesus' idea of welcoming people who had notorious reputations or scandalous backgrounds or shameful histories, extending an invitation to fellowship to scoundrels such as these, well, all of that was simply offensive to a Pharisee. It was reason to grumble. We'll look back at their statement in verse 2. 
This man receives sinners. Now, if you think about it, that those words can be inter- interpreted in two very different ways. That, that sentence can be read in two very, with two very different tones. This man receives sinners? You would probably say that with, with, with your hands on your head and, and your jaw dropped. That's the greatest news in the world. It's almost unthinkable that a sinless, blameless, holy God would welcome unholy people into fellowship with him without waiting for them to clean up their act first. This man receives sinners? But, of course, there's another way to read that same sentence. This man receives sinners. That's likely how the Pharisees said it. Probably with, you know, arms crossed, teeth clenched. They grumbled and complained that God would give such people even the time of day. Well, friends, we need to ask ourselves, how, how, would, how would we read that sentence? What would be your tone? What, what would be your posture? Would you be amazed at God's willingness to receive sinners? Or appalled? Or would you be skeptical of that? simply finding it hard to believe that he would do so. I think it all goes back to how we picture God in our mind's eye. Do we imagine God to be an austere, strict disciplinarian? A father who is hard to please, who, whose default posture is just to you know, stand back with his arms crossed, with, with, a, with a stern demeanor on his face? Or... Do we picture God to be a warm, welcoming father, a father who is slow to anger and quick to forgive, whose default posture is to run to you with open arms, with a look of exuberant joy on his face? Which do you see when you picture God? Of course, this is why Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the prodigal son, because the father character in that parable illustrates the very heart of God, a heart that welcomes all sinners, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not because he has to, but because he loves to. He loves to welcome sinners. And friends, don't get the wrong impression here. He doesn't welcome their sin. He welcomes sinners without welcoming their sin. Jesus doesn't excuse or justify the sin of the tax collectors or the sinners. In verse 7 and also in verse 10, it's clear that he is dining with repentant sinners. These are sinners who have repented of their sins. That doesn't mean that they don't still struggle with their sins. That doesn't mean that they, uh, that they don't occasionally fall back into their sins. But they are sinners who have turned their back on a life of sin, and they now seek to live a life in fellowship with Christ. Jesus warmly welcomes such as these. So that's the image of God we're given in this, in this prelude. He's a God who welcomes sinners. Now, now as Jesus tells these two parables, we're given another picture. We see a God who seeks the lost. Notice how these parables 
are, are told specifically to a certain audience. They are told to the Pharisees and the scribes. So look at verse 3. So he told them, the Pharisees and scribes, who were grumbling, this parable. Remember, he's responding to their objections. He's explaining why it is that he fellowships so freely with these tax collectors and sinners. And it's because he is a God who seeks the lost. That's his mission. He goes on to tell a well-known parable about a shepherd who leaves behind the 99 sheep, the 99 who are safe and sound in, in, in the sheepfold, and he goes after the one sheep that has gone astray, and he gives himself no rest until he finds his sheep and he brings it safely home. Now, commentators uh, all note that this parable involving a, a, a shepherd and a sheep is probably an allusion to an Old Testament prophecy, to Ezekiel chapter 34. Because there in that Old Testament prophecy, God confronts the leaders of Israel, and he describes them there as shepherds who have failed to take care of the sheep. God's people are now scattered all about. They are lost, and no one is looking for them. And so in Ezekiel 34, God says that he is going to come down, and he is going to go and find his own lost sheep. So listen to Ezekiel 34, verse 16. This is the Lord speaking. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. That's the Lord speaking in Ezekiel. And now with Jesus telling this parable, presenting himself as this shepherd who seeks lost sheep, those sheep that are neglected by the religious leaders of the day, Jesus is really putting himself in the shoes of God. He is making a subtle claim to be one with the Lord God. Now, in the second parable, there's also an emphasis on something precious being lost, and there's also an emphasis on, a, on an active search being deployed. This time, in the parable of the lost coin, we have a woman who has ten silver coins, but she loses one of them. The word there for coin refers to a drachma, a, a Greek coin that's worth about a day's wage for an average laborer. So she only has ten of these. It's pretty significant for her. Now, notice how in these parables, the stakes are being raised. The lost item is progressively more valuable to the individual. So the shepherd lost one of a hundred sheep. This woman lost one of ten coins. And in the third parable, the father lost one of two sons. So the severity of the situation gets progressively worse. But the big, the big difference, though, between the first and the second parable is really the additional space that's being given in the second parable to describe the diligence and the carefulness of this search. This woman is lighting up the entire house, we're told. She's sweeping all the floors. She's looking through all the, the nooks and crannies. She's looking underneath all the furniture. Jesus is trying to stress the great lengths that we will go to find precious lost things. Notice, I mean, and really there's nothing revolutionary about that kind of an observation, that, that we would go to great lengths to find something that's precious to us. That, that, that wouldn't have surprised anyone. 
But what would have been considered revolutionary in those days was to apply that to God's attitude towards sinners. Because in those days, it was actually common for rabbis to teach that God is merciful and that God would welcome repentant sinners. That's not an original idea. But the idea that God would actively seek after sinners, that he would take the initiative to go find them in their lostness, now that was a new insight coming from Jesus. But as we just saw from Ezekiel 34, the idea of God taking up the search for the lost was already well established in the Jewish scriptures. And so it it shouldn't have been a new insight, but sadly it was for people back then. The people of God had grown insular. They had grown segregated. They had spent their lives just avoiding Samaritans and Gentiles, shunning tax collectors and sinners. And so, the, so these two parables are a much-needed corrective for the people of God. They reemphasize God's initiative, and they reintroduce him as the primary seeker. Think about that. God is the primary seeker. And I, I know we commonly call those non-believers who are beginning to show an interest and a curiosity in spiritual matters, we call them seekers. They're seeking to learn the Bible. They're seeking to understand spiritual truths. They're seeking God. So we label them seekers. And look, I'm not against using that label as long as we acknowledge that it's really a human description and not a biblical one. As long as we just prioritize the biblical descriptions and the biblical terms for those that are non-believers. It's fine as long as we recognize that non-Christians are never labeled in Scripture as seekers, but they're more commonly described as lost people, like in our parables. Or they're described as spiritually blind people or spiritually dead people. And so in reality, their condition is much worse than merely being lost. Being lost in a whiteout blizzard, in some remote, uninhabited forest, man, that, that, that would be pretty bad. I, I would not want to be in that situation. The chance of a lost person in that situation finding his way home would be very slim. But there's zero chance of a spiritually blind person in a similar situation finding his way back home. And what if that person is spiritually dead and immobile? Well, he's just going to stay lost and just remain there. It's never to be found. And so the only chance of a happy ending in such a situation is for someone who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing to go and to search for that lost, blinded, immobilized person. And that is who Jesus describes himself to be. That's who he reveals God to be. God is not just a God for the righteous. God is not just a God for the morally upright. He's not just a God for those who seek after God. These parables are telling us that God is a God for the lost, for those who would still be lost if he didn't take the initiative to search for us. I mean, just think about how how wonderful that news is. God 
doesn't wait for us to get our act together. He doesn't wait for us to make the first move. He takes the initiative. That is wonderful news. Now, let's be clear. That doesn't mean that our pursuit of God, our searching after God is just unnecessary or meaningless. I mean, the third parable particularly emphasizes our role. The prodigal son, he had to turn around. He had to go back home. He had a responsibility. But, you know, I think there's a good reason why the first two parables stress God's initiative, God's active searching. And it's only until you get to the third parable that the lost person's actions are emphasized. Because I think that's the right order. That's how it works. We seek because God first sought us. Just as we love because he first loved us. So you could say that God is the seeker of seekers. He's the primary seeker. And that should be a huge encouragement, especially for those of you who feel very far from God right now, who feel, who feel far less worthy to be sought out by God. If you feel like that, if you feel like your life is of little worth and significance, just think about this. If God seeks you like a shepherd seeks his one sheep, or like that woman seeks her one coin, do you realize how much that means you're valued in his eyes? Any owner who loses something feels the loss personally. And the aggressiveness of his search will be a reflection of how much he values that which he lost. If he only, you know, looks around for a few minutes, you know, just checks behind the couch, looks under the rug, and then he just kind of gives up searching, then we would conclude that whatever it is that he lost must not be all that valuable or is significant. But if he goes on an all-night intensive search, not giving himself any rest, any sleep, then we realize, wow, the true value of what went missing. I, I'm, I remember when my oldest daughter was about like four or five, and she lost her lovey on a trip to the zoo. And her lovey was literally, is literally a sheep named Lammy. So, I mean, just the parallels are, are, are astounding. When we got home and we realized Lammy wasn't with us, I didn't need to be told what needed to be done. I immediately got back in my car. I drove back to the zoo, and I did an all-out search for Lammy. I went, I, I retraced all of our steps throughout the entire zoo looking for Lammy. And after a long and arduous search, I did find her, and I returned her to a very joyous and exuberant toddler. But the point is that the great lengths that I went to to find Lammy reflects the great value and worth of Lammy to our family. It would be different if she had just lost some random toy that you get out of a kid's meal. I mean, we're not going back for that. I mean, that's just, sorry, we lost it. Let's go home. The extraordinary effort to find a lost object reflects the extraordinary value of that object. 
and in the case of your salvation? Friends, not only did Jesus make an extraordinary effort to find you, he also paid an extraordinary price. He paid with his own blood, laying down his life for you and your salvation. And so I know you might feel worthless. You might feel like you're cheap and insignificant. But perhaps from now on, you need to stop letting your feelings to determine your worth. And you need to start letting God and his actions, his unrelenting search for you, and his willingness to sacrifice his own son for you, let that determine how much you're worth in his eyes. Now, these parables don't just offer a word of encouragement for the lost. If you really think about it, there is a great comfort here also for the found, those who are already in his flock. The shepherd's willingness to go after even one lost sheep offers a great assurance to the 99 who are safe and sound because they know how much they are individually valued by their shepherd. If he was willing, if he was willing to just you know, simply count his losses and like, ah, oh, well, you know, missing one. Oh, well, let's just, let's just move on. Let's leave behind the one. If he was willing to do that, oh, man, for the rest of the 99, that would just instill a fear among the entire flock that maybe one day the shepherd is going to leave me behind if I start straying or if I lag behind. That's going to instill fear. But now knowing that God will move heaven and earth to find just the one allows the 99 to rest assured that he would do exactly the same for them if they were ever in that situation. That's great comfort, not just for the lost, but for the found. Now, friends, we've been stressing this image of, of a God who seeks the lost, but, you know, actually the point of this parable is, is not to highlight the fact that God seeks the lost. The point of this parable is to highlight the fact that he rejoices over the found. Remember, Jesus is explaining why he does what he does. Why do I spend so much time with all these tax collectors and sinners? It's because these are repentant tax collectors and sinners, and I take great delight in their salvation. That's the third image that we see here in, this, in these two parables. We see a God who rejoices over the repentant. You see, both the shepherd and the woman have the same impulse to want to share their joy with other people. They both call together their friends and their neighbors to have a big party, to just rejoice. They celebrate together. They probably did actually throw a party. The focus is on the exuberant joy that we experience when precious lost things are found. And then Jesus goes and he lays out the main point in both verses 7 and 10. Verse 7, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or listen to verse 10, just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus is saying that the repentance of just one sinner is the cause of great joy in heaven, even more than the righteousness of 99 who need no repentance. Now, again, don't get them wrong. 
Jesus is not saying that he could care less about those 99 righteous persons. He's not, he's not diminishing the importance of their holiness. He's not diminishing the importance of the spiritual stability of mature believers. But Jesus is saying that there is a particular joy when the spiritually lost are found and welcomed into fellowship with Christ. It's, it's kind of like how the healing of a severely sick child in the family, of course, is going to bring the parents a particular joy. And it's fair to say that you're grateful for the fact that your other children are healthy, but you are particularly overjoyed that your one sick child is now well. I think that's, that's how we should understand. That he, he's, he's grateful for, for them all. He's joyous for them all. But when that one sheep comes back to the fold, when that one sinner repents, there is a particular joy that the Lord and all the hosts of heaven are celebrating. And it's this particular joy of conversion when the lost are found, the blind are made to see, the dead are raised to life. That's that cause for celebration going on in heaven and on earth. If you think about this, with over 7 billion people on our planet and with the rapid spread of global Christianity, that's why I suggested earlier that God's heart is constantly rejoicing with exuberant joy because there is not a moment that goes by without someone somewhere on this planet repenting of sin. So there is always a celebration going on in heaven. God is always exalting over found sinners with loud singing and a heart of gladness. So church, just think about how that reality of what's happening right now in heaven, all the celebrating, all the joy going on in heaven. Think about how that ought to shape our evangelism, how we go about seeking the lost. We are called as the church to preach a gospel of repentance. And just like we saw in last week's passage, there is a cost to discipleship, and repentance is part of that cost. Repentance means that we are calling people to turn away from a life of sin, a life of self-sufficiency and self-rule, and now to turn to Jesus, to live a life of righteousness, a life that utterly depends on Christ and trusts in his word. That's what we're calling people to. That's the kind of life we're trying to live, a life of repentance. That's the gospel of repentance. It's the biblical gospel. But we don't like to preach the biblical gospel because repentance sounds so hard. It sounds so harsh. It sounds so costly. It's going to scare people off. Maybe we can just bring up repentance later. Like, let, let's just right now, you know, when we're talking to non-Christians, let's just invite them to consider Christ. Let's just focus on, you know, the more pleasant and joyful aspects of the gospel. We'll bring up repentance later on. But that's where we need to be reminded by this passage that repentance is a cause for celebration. 
it's our mistake. It's our misperception. If we view repentance and self-denial as these unpleasant, irksome aspects of the gospel, it's really our failure to recognize the true joy of repentance. If, if we are prone to avoid any mention of it when we share the gospel, it's because we don't realize that repentance is a cause for great celebration going on in heaven right now. All the angels, all the saints in heaven are rejoicing right now. They're having a party right now because some sinner somewhere on this planet just repented and returned to the sheepfold. And for some silly reason, we're just too shy to bring up the topic of repentance. I'm not shy, and I have no reservation to bring up the topic of the Astros going to the World Series. And I'll talk about that with anyone. I'll talk about that. I'll talk your ear off on that because in my eyes, that is a great cause for great celebration. So this passage serves as a needed rebuke of my deficient view of gospel repentance. Because if I truly saw it as a great cause for celebration, then I would speak of repentance much more often than I really do. I would be much more free in sharing the gospel. Friends, I wonder if you feel a similar rebuke. If you're starting to realize that your view of repentance and your view of God's heart are both deficient, that they're both missing exuberant joy marked by loud singing and heart and a heart of gladness. Or if you find yourself in the same shoes as me, well, here's an opportunity for all of us to repent. Here's an opportunity to join the celebration that's happening right now in heaven. That, my friends, is why we spend so much time in our gathered worship singing praise songs, praising with our lips, because it's one way to join the chorus of loud singing over the loss who have been found, over one sinner who repents. And so I invite you, Jesus invites you, to come and join this celebration. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for these parables that are familiar to many of us. And yet, Lord, you're giving us a fresh look at them and helping us to realize more and more of your own heart, of how much joy is bubbling in your heart. Lord, help us to grasp that biblical image of you singing over us with a loud voice filled with gladness over your people. Forgive us for the images that we have of you that fail to reflect that truth. Help us to more clearly see you and your great heart of joy for us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.